It's good to be back with you and to be looking into God's Word together. We're in Psalm 12 this morning, where we started the service, Psalm 12. As we come to look into Psalm 12, to tell you about a Christian farmer. The Christian farmer had two small boys named John and Tom. One night, the farmer pops into the bedroom to see the boys before they go to sleep. And he asks them if they've prayed. They haven't. And one of them, John, says that he isn't feeling well and adds that they don't really know how to pray. So their father sits on the bed and he says to them, there's a little prayer that has helped me many times when I've been in trouble. And God can make you feel better when you pray to him for help. I pray this prayer many times, more than any other prayer. Oh, what's that, Dad? The boys asked. Lord, help me, says their dad. The boys look up at their father. You've prayed those words and the Lord has helped you? Tell us how, asked Tom. The farmer says, Well, about 15 years ago, I would graze our sheep on cabbages in the autumn and the winter months. It's the outer leaves after the cabbages have been harvested. I would pay the cabbage farmer 10 pence per sheep per week. 10 pence per sheep per week. At the end of the winter, I would pay the farmer 130 pounds. But the next winter, there's a hard frost for three weeks in December. And this means, of course, all the farmer's cabbages are spoiled. And the cabbage farmer says, you can graze all the fields with your sheep. There's so much good feed for the sheep because all these cabbage hearts have not been harvested. I have nearly a thousand sheep all eating the cabbages. At the end of the winter, I reckon up how much I owe for the cabbages. And this is 1,130 pounds. Nearly exactly 1,000 pounds more than the year before. Oh dear, I have a problem. It's been a hard winter. I've many bills to pay on the farm and I don't have any money left. The price for sheep is very low and that cabbage farmer needs paid. He's been pushing me to pay a higher rate for the cabbages this year and I know that tomorrow he's coming to collect the money for the sheep's grazing. I can maybe pay him £130, like I usually pay by the end of the month, but oh dear, not £1,130. Whatever can I do? All night I stay awake and all I can cry is, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. By the afternoon, I'm at my wit's end. I've been crying all morning as I've been working with the sheep. Lord, help me. The man is coming to collect the money at five o'clock. Wherever can the money come from? It's impossible. What should I do? Lord, help me. Lord, help me. It's four o'clock. I'm in my field by the pond. The boys all know where that is. And I fall down. And there's none to help. And I cry, Lord, help me for a whole hour. Five o'clock comes and I hear the man's car 
and see it arrive in the gateway, about 300 metres away. I'm beyond all help now. I stand up. I stagger across the field like a drunken man. Every step, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I arrive at the gate and lift up my downcast head to look at the cabbage farmer because I can't speak. The cabbage farmer says, I've been thinking coming along. Just pay me the same amount as you did last year and send it to me by the end of the month. And he goes back to his car and drives off. I turn around and walk back towards the pond. I run, I skip. £130 to pay instead of £1,130. I stop and I shout out for all the animals in the field to hear. The Lord has paid £1,000 for me. I fall on my knees by the pond. Oh, praise him, praise him. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. I give thanks unto the Lord for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts up the needy from the ash heap. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. The farmer controls himself in the bedroom and encourages the boys to pray, Lord, help me. His boys, Tom and John, they say they like that prayer. And they've learned it already. My first main point, though, as we look at Psalm 12, is about darkness. Darkness, it's a dull, dark psalm. You don't often have this one at the beginning of the service, do you? Help, Lord, for the godly are no more, verse 1. The faithful have vanished from among men. This is darkness in the community. Let me describe to you a situation that you may well know. I don't think it's quite near to you, but it's certainly near to me, where groups of boys or girls terrorise a street. Cars are vandalised. Rubbish is thrown into a garden. Obscene phone calls are made. The handicapped are mocked. Stones are thrown. We've been living in Campbelltown for a little while now, but we've had three riots while we've been there. Been a riot in Rose Meadow, right near us. Right in... Macquarie Fields, a riot at MacArthur Square. No one seems to do anything much about it. The helicopters fly over. They move people along and then they build more new buildings in Rose Meadow. And what can be done? There's darkness in the community. There's darkness also in the church. Verse 2. Everyone lies to his neighbour. Their flattering lips speak with deception, as Calvin explains, he says, a deluge of iniquity prevails in the church of God. The preacher so often flatters his or her congregation in order to keep them coming to the church and putting money in the offering. Remember Spurgeon's special pen name, John Plowman? You seen the John Plowman books? Spurgeon talks very practically about living the Christian life and he writes as though he's a farmer. And he speaks about preachers who flatter their congregations and the congregations who love it to be so. And Spurgeon says, None but the silliest of sheep would go to hear the fox's sermon. None but the silliest of none but the silliest of geese, sorry, none but the silliest of geese would go to hear the fox's sermon. It's so hard to handle flattery, isn't it? 
If the devil came raging and threatening, we could deal with him. Better than when he comes with flattering lips. How many preachers themselves have been ruined believing the flattery of Satan, telling them what marvellous preachers they are. Lies are more deadly than swords or bombs or guns and all kinds of other weapons. Darkness in the church. Then there's terrible darkness that's so often found among intellectual leaders, people who have good minds but they, know, they don't live up to what they know. They should know better. Verse 3, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue that says, We will triumph with our tongues. We own our lips. Who is our master? Let's go back a few centuries to that French philosopher Voltaire. Back in the 18th century, he openly boasts. It's hundreds of years ago now. But what did he say? Voltaire says, In 20 years, there'll be no more Christianity. My single hand will destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to build. In 50 years, no one will remember Christianity. Intellect like nothing else, Voltaire. He should have known better. Flattering lips. Nonsense, wasn't it? Christianity, back in the 1700s, was going to be finished in 50 years. We're still moral darkness of bullying and neglect. Look at the beginning of verse 5. Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy. In Britain, at least 35,000 old men and women die from cold each year. They don't have a hot water bottle that'll take them right through the night because it's too cold. A staggering, scandalous figure. The winter cull of the elderly has become an accepted part of national life. Someone will die of the cold every five minutes in Britain every winter. Worst of all is the darkness of moral perversion there at the very end of the psalm. The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honoured among men. D.H. Lawrence, some of you will know of him, the novelist. He says that the whole trouble with the human race is that we think too much and that the mind is too developed. And after that he says the secret of success and happiness in life is to let the physical parts govern and take control. He wants us to go back to nature. His novels are very clever. Ultimately it's a ridiculing of social norms and controls on society. This is when we can do anything we want to do and we dismiss the idea of decency and order. If you listen to the reviews of plays and movies, just read them or listen to them. If there's any element of decency in society, it's ridiculed and dismissed. We've almost reached the stage in Australia in which not to be perverted is to be abnormal. Perversion is glorified. What irresponsible darkness. It's verse 8 say, The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honoured among men. Here is the abandonment of any moral standard. 
Terribly discouraging, isn't it? H.G. Wells wrote a story of a man who climbs a steep mountain range and descends the other side to find a lost tribe, none of whom are able to see. The whole concept of seeing is foreign to this lost tribe. And when this man talks to them about colours and stars and clouds and birds, they think that the man is crazy. The cause of the man's madness, they decide, the tribal people decide, are those two protuberances on each side of the bridge of his nose. And the cure, they suggest, is to cut out his eyes. The man quickly escapes from them. People today in Australia, right near us, right next door to us, maybe people in this building this morning, people are in darkness and they want it that way. It's terribly, terribly discouraging. Let's look at my second main point. There is a friend at hand. You need to speak to the Lord, just like that farmer explains to those two boys, Tom and John. Just like that little girl Ruth in Africa. There's somebody to speak to about the darkness. There is this most capable friend at hand all of the time to help you with the darkness. But you don't come to ask for help. Satan lies to you that it's too hard to pray or that it's not the right time. But this song starts with those words, Help, Lord. Psalm 12, verse 1. This is the prayer of David, isn't it? It's more than likely it's prayed in special circumstances. David, in the chapter we've just read together, was treacherously betrayed again and again. David delivers the city of Keilah from the Philistines. And then he has to flee from that very place, or else the people of Keilah would deliver him over to his enemy Saul. Everyone seems to act treacherously with David, just as well he's got a friend Jonathan. David is in this state of wandering. And David then turns away altogether from people in whom he could put no confidence, and he cries, Help! Lord. Go to Spurgeon's sermon and you'll find great details about this. It's a cry of desperation, though. Spurgeon doesn't say this. It's from one of the commentaries. It's a cry of desperation of a man who knows that no one else and nothing else can make the slightest difference but the Lord himself. The Hebrew word for help there is normally followed by an object. But here it isn't. It's usually followed by the object, help me or help so-and-so. That's what normally happens. This is badly written here. So it's a shout that isn't finished. It's a cry of a drowning man. Help! But he doesn't get the chance to get the rest out. He's screaming so much. Spurgeon says, What strikes you about this prayer is its shortness. Help, Lord. Two words. And one of those words is really the direction for where the prayer's got to go, where the parcel's got to go, where the prayer's got to go. One of the words is, for the Lord. It's the very soul of brevity, this prayer. Help, Lord. I may, however, say that is none too short for all that because there is a suggestiveness and a fullness which cannot easily be exhausted in this short prayer. It's no fault in our prayers if they're short. Can't you see, my dear friends, that those of you who have been saying... Oh, we don't pray because we need some more time. 
that you're guilty of great falsehood. Our excuse can't be want of time. Help, Lord, why it takes scarcely a second to pray a prayer that long. It's not want of time. It's want of heart, isn't it? Want of an inclination to pray. People talk about praying as though they needed an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening to pray. I invite you to adopt the prayer, brief as it is, and use it tonight and tomorrow and all your days. Help, Lord. Besides being very short, it's a timely prayer. Spurgeon Spurgeon calls it a seasonable prayer. Seasonable prayer for those prayers speak best that spring out of emergency, like when you've got a fair wind and it drives the soul to God's throne. This man knows what he wants and he asks for it. He doesn't ask for wealth. He doesn't ask for health. He doesn't ask for long life. He wants what? He wants help. He's come to a dead end and he cannot lift his burden and he cries, help, Lord. It's one word, but that one word goes straight at once to the mark. What a mercy it is to be able to pray pointed prayers. Help, Lord. And it's a well-aimed prayer. He knew the friend he's speaking to, a friend full of love and faithfulness and strength and wisdom. And so he says at once, help, Lord. Nor can you fail to understand that this prayer has in it a confession of weakness. A man doesn't cry for help, at least not a man with a heart like David. He doesn't cry for help unless he wants it. Shall I ask this friend for what I already have? No. A sense of need makes me pray. We sang it before, didn't we? I need thee. I need you every hour. Most gracious Lord. David has been striving with all his might, but he finds his strength inadequate to the task. And he's been looking about for help everywhere, but he finds it no help and sensible of his own utter nothingness and emptiness. He turns at once to the best friend. This prayer is like a sword with two edges. It's like an article that can be used for a thousand different things. You've seen a Swiss army knife? It's something like that. It's a most handy prayer. It turns every way. You can use it in all cases for all times. Sometimes unemployment hits you. Another time it may be the roguery of others that brings you down to, from competence to poverty. Sometimes it's sickness may fall upon you and you may be disabled. Well, you pray for health that time. But that's not what we always need. In a thousand ways... You can be brought to feel that you need help in your circumstances. I suggest that before you leave this building, you pray this prayer. Help, Lord. Use it. Appropriate it. Expand it if you want to, according to your faith and your feelings. Maybe like this. Lord, help you fed Elijah's ravens, and you made the widow's bottle of oil and handful of meal last, and you helped that missionary... And that little girl that asked, little girl Ruth, who asked not just for the water bottle, but for the doll too, for the tiny little sister. And what about 
prayers in the New Testament. You go to Matthew chapter 14, and what does Peter pray when he's trying to walk on the water? Lord, save me. It's, Lord, I want to pray like Peter. Rescue me. Or you might want to pray like that woman we just read about too. What does she pray for her daughter? She prays for help. Her daughter is in terrible trouble in Matthew 14. Expand the prayers. Say, Lord, you helped that woman with her daughter problem and you helped Peter and he was trying to walk on the water. I don't know what he was doing out there, but I'm in an impossible situation too. Help. You can expand the prayer. It's really marvellous. And most of our lives will prove it how this friend is there when you're at your wit's end. I speak now for a minute or two to unbelievers and non-Christians. You can only pray this prayer from the bottom of your heart and present it through the blood of the Lord Jesus. And you shall have help. I plead with you not to go to bed tonight. Do not shut your eyes until you, from your heart, have prayed this prayer. Help, Lord. Help. And every morning rise with this prayer and every night retire with it until you have the answer. This friend is at hand and he comes as he feels. What does he feel? You put your case in his hands and he feels the force of his own special kind of love. It's an overwhelming love he has for the creatures that he maintains every minute of their existence. He has this overwhelming love. And person to person, he knows you. He's more interested in you and more interested in your coming to him than you are for the help that he is about to give you. What grace! This friend at hand comes as he feels the force of his own overwhelming love. Verse 5, the last part of verse 5. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And then you can praise him, verse 7. O Lord, you will keep us safe and protect us from such people forever. Of course there's an objection, isn't there? There has to be. And David has it there in the song. He's a songwriter like no one else. He knows his own heart and he knows what people feel just like he feels. My last main point is to answer this very real question. How can you know for sure? How can you know? Does this friend answer? Well, he always answers. He does not merely say good things to encourage us. He comes to rescue and deliver us. He rises and comes today in Dremoyne. And he saved Dremoyne sinners or wherever you live. Today. Why are you here today? Knowing the Lord as your saviour and friend. Because you cried to the Lord for help and he arose and he helped you. And you must go on crying and crying for help. And the Lord will keep coming and coming to help you. This prayer means safety, of course. It means safety at the very basic level of everyday care. Protection in childbirth. Protection in that operation. Protection when you grow old and you're steadily more feeble. Protection when you're making important decisions that you have to make. And the Lord keeps you safe. Of course, there are times when you hit the black ice and you bump the car. And one day you will get an illness that will take you to be with the Saviour and to be like him forever. But then you can extend this prayer to all kinds of situations. Lord, I'm being tempted. 
Keep me safe and protect me. Lord, I'm bothered with doubts and unbelief. Keep me safe and protect me. You'll never perish if this friend is there for you. You may grow ill. As Jeffrey Thomas says, you may grow sick in mind and sick in body. You may have to spend weeks or months in the hospital. You may live your life on 30 tablets a day. I know a lady in Tamar who has to take that many each day. All those chemicals, she's just running on chemicals, isn't she? You may live your lives on 30 tablets a day. You may be in utter darkness, but God will never allow you to fall into the bottomless pit. If he's begun a good work in you, he will complete it. He will keep you safe and protect you. But is it all too good to be true? Well, I don't give you words that you might just like to hear, or I wouldn't choose this psalm to talk to you with. Right. Not, not my criteria. It's not my reason for speaking to you to give you words that you just might like to hear. I might be giving you deceiving, flattering words, and there'll be no help to anyone. I've told you what the psalm says, except for verse 6. What's verse 6 says? And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a, surf, in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. Refined precious metals last for many centuries. That's why they can be buried under the ground and they dig them up and they still haven't fully decayed. You know the process. A refiner refines the silver. And after removing all the dross, it gets rid of the rubbish that comes to the surface as it's cooked up. And in this instance, he refines it once again, the already refined silver. Again, he removes those tiny particles of dross that are still there. And then he repeats the whole process. And then once again, in fact, he refines this silver seven times until it's utterly flawless. Like something you'd find on the Queen's table. There's her napkin ring and it shines. It's going to last forever, isn't it? Or a goblet that some king has. And it shines. I'll have to put one up on the screen there for you. Something incredible because of the refining process. Completely unalloyed unalloyed and unadulterated and that's the nature of the Bible that you have before you God has subjected the Bible to a refining process so thorough that not even the smallest particle of deception or exaggeration is there anywhere in God's word as Jeffrey Thomas says imbibe these pure words of the Lord into your life Put scripture in your veins, sniff it into your nostrils, eat it up, breathe it in, drink it down, fill your pores with it. It can do you no harm at all because it is purified completely. Well, as I conclude, it's useless to say that you don't know how to pray. Prayer is the simplest act of all in getting to know God. It is simply speaking to God. Prayer needs neither education nor wisdom, nor all kinds of learning to begin to pray. It needs nothing but a heart and a determination, a will. 
The weakest infant can cry when he or she is hungry. The poorest beggar can hold out their hand for alms, and that beggar doesn't have to wait to find special words. The most ignorant person will find something to say to God if they'll put their mind to it. And it's useless to say you have no convenient place to pray. I know that some people are living in crowded apartments and that kind of thing. And it's not the right room. You don't have the right place. Any person can find a place to pray private enough if they're disposed. Our Lord prayed on a mountain. Peter prayed on the housetop. Isaac prayed in a field. David prayed all over the place, didn't he? In caves and all kinds of places, outminding sheep. Jonah prays in a whale's stomach or in his belly there somewhere. Any place may become a private place to meet with God if you're determined to meet with him. It's useless to say that you have no time. There's plenty of time if people will employ it. Time may be short, but time's always long enough for prayer. Daniel had the affairs of a kingdom on his hands and he prayed three times every day. David, that we've been thinking about, becomes a ruler over a mighty nation, yet he says, Psalm 55, 17, Psalm 55, 17, Evening, morning and noon I will cry out in distress and he hears my voice. When time is really wanted, time can always be found. Well, let's pray right now Lord God we confess to you our prayerlessness but at the same time we confess to you our weakness not only do we sin against you but that we are weak but Lord Jesus we thank you that you are all grace and that you never make a mistake and that you've gone ahead for us to answer our prayers even right now that you know us all, each one, and you know us as a church too, and you answer, help, Lord. Help us with our prayers. Maybe concentrate on you, and not just how we're saying things. May we know more of your faithfulness and your great love and the constraints that are upon you in your own character to answer us as you put promises before us and as we know for sure that you're more interested in helping us than we are in coming to you for the help that we so much need. Help us not just to come in emergencies but to be coming all the time asking for our friends who don't know you and our relatives who don't know you and asking for others in great need and for people all over the world in our generation and praying ahead for people in coming generations that your word will not return to you empty but that will fulfill the purpose that you have for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Lord Jesus, should you not return soon, but we expect you. You want us to. You want, to want us to anticipate what it is to be like you and to see you as you are in all your grace and mercy. We thank you for speaking to us today 
Go on speaking. Make yourself known. Help us to respond in a way that honors you. In a way that we enjoy you forever. And we pray in your name.